working? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. This is so lovely. I, I hear that you do this regularly or fairly. So uh, what a nice idea. Um, and it's such a nice, it's so nice for me to be at your church. And I, I have a few friends in the room and it's so nice to see some familiar faces. And um, uh, my husband and I, you heard what we do in Western Mass and you'll hear a little bit more about that. But um, we are really grateful for Neil and Christina. They've been a huge encouragement to us as fellow pastors and wives um, out in Western Mass. So we're thankful for you guys and it's fun to be here. So I have a confession to make. I do not have a green thumb. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm in love with the idea of gardening, but I think I seem to lack uh, a knack. In fact, I think I might fear gardening a little bit, um, and I resist the idea because of a couple of experiences with house plants. <clears throat> but a couple of years ago, a friend of mine gave me um, she, she insisted on giving me some hosta cuttings, so you should be impressed that I even know what a hosta is. Um, and I tried to politely refuse, but she dropped off a bucket of roots with dirt on them and attached leaves and told me to just put them in the ground. And so the bucket sat out near, the front, near our front door for probably too many days um, while my guilt over letting them die grew, and so I finally gave in, and I put them in the ground. I dug a little row in front of another set of bushes in our front yard that I did not plant, Um, and out of guilt, (laughs) put them in the ground, and um, had probably some doubt and grumbling while I did that, but they grew. (laughs) I'm sure you're not surprised. They grew larger and fuller each spring. And um, I love looking at them, but I'm pretty sure this one success of mine does not mean you're going to want to hire me as your next (laughs) landscaper. But still, I planted something, something cut from someone else's yard, no less, and it grew. And so while plants are often used to illustrate people and their growth, the truth is uh, people don't always thrive where they've been planted or placed. And I suppose some plants don't either, but it's not... It's not due to their choices. Um, It's why we have cliches and sayings like bloom where you're planted to encourage each other to thrive and to make the best of any given situation. So I did a little research on the origin of the phrase bloom where you're planted, and it comes from the 16th century. um, It's a French Catholic bishop in Switzerland, um, in Geneva, and he said this, Somewhere between 1567 and 1622, he wrote, True charity has no limit, for the love of God has been poured into our hearts by his Spirit dwelling in each one of us, calling us to a life of devotion and inviting us to bloom in the garden where he has planted and directing us to radiate the beauty and spread the fragrance of his providence. And I got to thinking as I was driving over here this morning that the the phrase, bloom where you're planted, it, it actually assumes something um, sort of on the negative end of that, and that's that we, we resist that or it's difficult to do that. So I got a little worried yesterday and today that what I'm about to share might seem a little 
bit of a downer. <laughs> but I promise at the end there's, there's some hope. So just hang in there. Um, so the phrase can't be found in the Bible. But the concept is found all over the scriptures, you're probably aware. And so when I was first told about your theme by Barbara, I first thought of um, Psalm 37. So this is one of my favorite psalms, um, and I've clung to it often over the years. It's a song, psalm written by an older King David. And this is what, I think, verse... Three and four. I didn't write the verse numbers here, but it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. And so then I started thinking about specific times when God has asked people uh, to bloom where they're planted in scriptures. And the book of Jeremiah came to mind. <laughs> so right away, Jeremiah is kind of a funny book, but not a happy one, Um, especially the 29th chapter. And you might be familiar with the 29th chapter of Jeremiah because of the famous verse 11. Does anybody know the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, that I'm talking about? Memorized. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you. That's the one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I've received a couple of graduation cards lately with that verse on the card. And while it is a verse about God's plans and the coming circumstances of his people, the context really has nothing to do with celebrations or congratulations or even God's plan to prosper his children with good jobs or safety or successful futures. It's quite the opposite. So the context of Jeremiah chapter 28, Nine, and specifically verse 11, the context is exile. So in this chapter, God's people have been recently conquered by an enemy nation and forced from their homes. It's, it's a consequence of their years and years of disobedience, of rebellion, of idol worship. And so um, if we review, you know, we started in Genesis. If we do a little review of the whole Old Testament, we start in Genesis and we have Um, the creation of humankind in a perfect garden, but then there's disobedience, there's rebellion, there's separation from God, sin enters the world. Eventually later there's a flood, there's a tower, there's a confusion of the language, and there's a dispersal of God's people on purpose. Um, Much later God works through Abraham to create a people and a nation for himself, but then later they find themselves enslaved in Egypt In Egypt, God rescues them from that slavery through Moses and agrees to give them the promised land if they stay faithful to him, obeying his commands and not worshiping idols. And they agree to this. This is called the Old Covenant. It was kind of like a rent contract between God and the landlord, God the landlord, and the Hebrews, the tenants. The ultimate purpose, bringing glory to God and shining a light um, among the nations. And then Leviticus and Deuteronomy... You have the Israelites about to begin living in the promised land and hearing again about the covenant and God asking them to promise to obey and forsake idols. They agree to this, but they, and, and they know that if they do that, they're vulnerable, that enemy nations can come in and um, attack and destroy. And then for most of the Old Testament, the rest of it, you have the Israelites disobeying, worshiping idols, not heeding the warnings of the prophets, 
And then you have Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentations, um, where the land is finally taken away. And the Israelites are exiled to Babylon. And if you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you know it happens in Babylon. They're in exile. So when God's people heard Jeremiah 29, 11, there were no robes and tassels and cakes and parties and family photos and balloons. Instead, there were armies and death and destruction and captivity and slavery. Um, the wall of their city was destroyed. The temple where they worshipped was burned. And every precious and holy possession they owned was taken away. Now, God had been very patient with them for about a thousand years giving them many, many opportunities to turn back to him. But now he's appointed some what seem like to be very extreme consequences. So I thought we could look at Jeremiah 29 and see how he expects them to respond to these consequences in these new circumstances that they're in. So if if you want to follow along and if you have your Bible, that would be great. Jeremiah chapter 29. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 of the chapter. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile. The priests, the prophets, all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So, We know Jeremiah is a prophet. He's a man chosen by God to speak to the nation of Israel on his behalf and warn them of the consequences that will come if they don't start obeying God. But they didn't listen to Jeremiah. In fact, if it weren't so tragic, it would be quite hilarious because leaders from the Jewish nation keep coming to Jeremiah and saying, Jeremiah, do you have a word from the Lord? And he says, yes, I do. Turn from your idols and worship God, or the Babylonians are coming to get you. And they don't like that word (laughs) from Jeremiah, so they beat him up, or they put him in stocks, or they throw him in pits, or in quicksand-like cisterns. And then a little while later, they come back, and they say, Jeremiah, do you have a word from the Lord? And he says, yes, I do. Turn from your idols. If you don't turn from your idols and worship the one true God, the Babylonians are coming. And this happens over and over and over. I think somewhere in her, I have written, ha, ha, because it's, and every time, it's like an exclamation point. Jeremiah is saying, yes, I have a word from the Lord, but they don't like it. So, um, yeah, on and on always refusing, always refusing to turn from their disobedience, thinking there's another way, I guess. So guess what happens? The Babylonians invade, and they destroy everything, and they, just, they drive the Israelites away from their homes and their land, and they possibly, there's discrepancy, I looked this up, but maybe 600 or possibly more miles away, Jerusalem to Babylon. So this was like a three, four, five-month journey out and away from their home. And that's quite a separation when you think of it. 
So in the verses we just read, Jeremiah, though, is still in Jerusalem. So he writes a letter to the Israelites in Babylon, and it's especially written to the leaders, the prophets, the priests, the king, and it's sent by two messengers. And because Jeremiah is a prophet, we know that the words of the letter, and we know because we read, thus says the Lord, that the the letter is a message from God himself. Now, knowing that this letter comes after a thousand years of Israel's betrayals and, and all of God's warning, what will the letter say? So we might expect the letter to be an I told you so letter, a see what happens when you don't listen letter, or um, a rebuke, a I'm so done with you letter. We might expect it to sound like, this is kind of random, but this came to mind as I was planning, we might expect the letter to sound like a Keith Urban song from about 15 years ago, the one that goes... Take your records, take your freedom, take your memories, I don't need them. Take your space and all your reasons, but you'll think of me. This is a country western song, so (laughs) you can tell it, it follows that genre. Take your cap and leave my sweater, we have nothing left to weather. In fact, I'll feel a whole lot better, but you'll think of me, you'll think of me. (laughs) So fortunately, God was not quite as bitter as Keith over his breakup, (laughs) But the reality is that that God's in a covenant relationship with his people. And so he is literally unable to break up with his own people. He can't do it because he's God. Um, And Israel is well known in the Old Testament. And if you've read it enough, you're familiar that Israel is referred to as the unfaithful wife of God. She keeps betraying him, but he remains faithful. So with that in mind, maybe instead of a breakup letter or song, it's a letter telling them to just hunker down and wait for God to intervene. Or maybe it's a, um, don't worry, it's all going to be over soon letter. Or a letter encouraging them to just actively resist the pagan nation where they're living and just stay pure and stick together and fight for their rights. And we know from Psalm 137 that the Israelites were in misery in in Babylon. Um, This is a very sad psalm, Psalm 137, and the little subtitle that's been given is an experience of the captivity, and it says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem, their home. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So they longed to have their homeland back. They wept and they couldn't sing anymore. So let's see what Jeremiah's letter actually says to them. This is in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 29. He says, Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. 
So the letter is basically telling them to bloom where they're planted. <laughs> Even though where they are planted is exile, it's, it's not fun. So in the midst of their deep sadness and homesickness, they are asked to build houses and live in them. They're asked to plant gardens and eat from them. They should get married and have children and settle down. They should encourage their children to get married and have children and settle down. And all of those things take time. They take years. They take generations even. And so as originally, as a people called out from among pagan nations, required to separate themselves for the sake of pure worship, I don't think this is what they were expecting at all. And I'm sure there were even a few in the crowd who remained faithful to God. They did not turn to idols. They continued making sacrifices and following the law, but they weren't immune to the consequences that the nation as a whole was going to experience. And not only does God ask them to build houses and establish lives for themselves in Babylon, he asked them to go as far as to pray for Babylon and seek the welfare of Babylon This may have felt like adding insult to injury, right? And this was King Nebuchadnezzar. And they're asking to um, seek his welfare, the welfare of um, a pagan nation with an egotistical, violent, indulgent king. So maybe you're beginning to think of times when God has asked something similar of you. you. You might not have literally been driven from your home, but maybe you have. Um, but you've been asked to endure uncomfortable circumstances, less than ideal situations, seasons of life that were unexpected or difficult. Last week, my, my daughter is almost 17, and she uh, had volunteered a few weeks ago to, to work at a three-day conference and camp for parents and kids. So she was assigned to be a helper in a geography classroom with um, younger elementary-aged kids, and one of her closest friends was going to be the leader of that class, and her two other best friends were the helpers in the class. Well, two days before camp started, the conference director switched her away from the geography camp to the logic camp with an adult she's leading that she's not familiar with, and two middle school boy helpers who she does not particularly enjoy. And she was very disappointed (laughs) and distraught. It was not at all the fun and familiar circumstances she was anticipating. In fact, the main reason she signed up to volunteer in the first place was because she was going to be with her friends all day. So we had to have this um, bloom where you're planted conversation. (laughs) And so after that, she spent 27 hours in total, nine hours a day, um, striving to bloom where she was planted and ended up being complimented on her good attitude, which was wonderful. But the Israelites were asked to do much more than endure three work days with immature middle school boys. Okay? And not only that, but they were receiving conflicting messages from other prophets. So listen to what the next couple of verses say. This is verses 8 and 9. Um, where am I? For, the, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So evidently there's some self-appointed prophets in their midst, 
And though it doesn't say specifically what their message was, we know from context and from later in the chapter that they're telling their fellow Israelites that the exile is going to be short, that their misery would soon be over, and God was coming to rescue them within the next year or so. But a short time of exile was not God's plan for them, and we know that from what he's asked them to do, which we've already read uh, while they're there, and also what he says next. So now let's read 10 through 14, which you're probably familiar with. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So the prophets in exile, the false ones, were telling everyone that the years of their um, away from their homeland would be few. But God, through Jeremiah, uh, was telling them there would be 70 years. Now, and 70 years was kind of a, probably a generous number for the length of years in a person's life during that point in history. So what this means is that most adults hearing the words of this letter were never going to leave Babylon. They were going to have to settle in and make the best of living in a foreign land for literally the rest of their lives. So... Um, you, you, Barbara's already given me away, but you, you might know that I'm not from around here. I'm not from Sterling or central Massachusetts or Massachusetts at all. I didn't grow up anywhere near New England, though I did dream of traveling here one day. In fact, this might be funny to some of you New Englanders, but growing up, my dream honeymoon was to stay in bed and breakfasts all over New England Quaint little small town inns, fall leaves lining the hills and back roads, white steepled churches, the rocky coastline, and fires burning in every fireplace and wood stove. It seemed like the perfect fairy tale to me. So um, my real honeymoon (laughs) did not end up being in New England. Instead, my husband and I ended up in Galveston, Texas. Anyone ever been there? (laughs) Yes, okay. Yes, a couple. Um, It's much nicer now than it was then. And we stayed in near a less than beautiful golf coach beach in a family-friendly resort because a family that I was babysitting for at the time gave us a coupon. So we could hear the older gentleman in the room next to us snoring each night. And there were hordes of children running up and down the hallways on the way to the pool all throughout the day. So it was a far cry from the romantic New England honeymoon I, would, I was hoping for. Um, and the reason we honeymooned there is because we're from there, and not from Galveston, but from Texas. And uh, my husband, Robert, was a youth pastor at the time in Austin, Texas. And I was in my last year at the University of Texas in Austin, And um, living on one ministry income meant that you gladly take the coupon that the family, (laughs) to the family-friendly resort that's being offered to you. 
And it was a honeymoon after all, so it wasn't that difficult to bloom where we were planted in Galveston. Seven years later, though, the Lord did grant a trip to New England, and so far it's lasted 18 years. (laughs) Um, It was not exactly what I had in mind. But in 1999, God opened a door for ministry in New England. My husband always had a desire to plant a church in a place that needed more churches. And, and an opportunity came open in Amherst, Massachusetts, right after he finished seminary. Um, I think we both thought, I was pretty unfamiliar with church planting. It was kind of a new thing at the time. But I think we both thought, oh, in our 40s and 50s, we'll, we'll plant a church. And we were, you know, in late 20s, early 30s at the time. So we visited Boston and Amherst in, in January of 1999. So um, Boston... Massachusetts, in general, is a little different from Texas in January. Um, This is our first ever trip to New England. Um, And then we moved to Amherst in July of 1999 with a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I was pregnant with my daughter by December of that year, and I did not know one soul in Massachusetts, let alone in OBGYN. So it was bitter cold. It was snowing outside. My husband was very busy trying to meet people in town and gather people for worship services, and I was home alone on the couch with morning sickness and two toddlers running around except when I was hosting students and mission teams for meals in my home. And then just after I found out I was pregnant, and I'm not sure why this stands out so big in my mind, but we we started getting the local newspaper just to learn the area. So I find out I'm pregnant, the newspaper comes to our front doorstep, and the front page proclaimed the new abortion services at the nearby hospital. So this Texas girl (laughs) was very lonely, probably depressed, and semi-horrified that I lived in a town proud of its abortion services. Where had God brought me? (laughs) It was not romantic or fairy tale-ish at all. It felt like exile. The following July, when my daughter turned one, I looked around my dining room table at the people I'd been able to gather for her first birthday party um, and watch her eat her first bite of cake as a teapot cake that I'd worked on very carefully for the occasion. There were a couple of UMass students, two visitors from Oklahoma who were also college students, my husband, my two little boys, and me. It was not the big gathering of friends and family that my boys had each had back in Texas for their first birthdays, and I wondered why the Lord had sent me to this place and, and for this to be my, my lot right now. Um, I'm not sure what I expected, and, I, and though I loved ministry, and I did love ministry, and I still do, I'm standing here, <laughs> um, and I knew we were here for a good purpose, it's still, at that moment, it felt like a cruel punishment. Um, so sometimes after that is when, I, when Psalm 37 jumped out at me, and I've already shared the verses that I began to cling to and try and practice, but here they are again. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, and cultivate faithfulness. And then delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So dwell, I'll give you some definitions. Reside, live, settle, stay. The Hebrew word in that case is shakan, to establish, abide, remain. Cultivate, so dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. Cultivate, to improve 
growth by labor and attention to develop, to dig, to till, to plow, to fertilize. The Hebrew word there is rawah, and it means to tend and to graze. Um, what shepherds had the sheep doing, grazing, was a, a means of cultivation. And it also means befriend and associate with. And then faithfulness, devotion, long-continued, steadfast fidelity, loyal stability. So when I read those verses in that period of time in my life, I knew that the Lord was asking me to bloom where I had been planted. I wrote the verses out. I stuck them on the refrigerator as a constant reminder. As difficult as it often, I often found it, and as resistant as my heart could be at times, I knew he was asking me to build a home here, to plan birthday parties here with whomever is able to come, to pick apples here and eat lobster here, to meet my neighbors, to walk the Freedom Trail, to enjoy the history, to learn how to snowshoe, to pray for my town and my state and my region, to join the local women's club, to purchase a snowblower and some waterproof boots, to join the local organic farm co-op. That's a really... um, you're really something if you're a part of an organic farm in Amherst. You just have a lot of clout if you, um, and you're really cool if you do that. So, lead small group Bible studies for young women. Spend time on the college campuses. We have five college campuses in our area, um, and mostly students at our church. Invite folks over for lunch after the service, and, and so on. And it was David's words at the end of that Psalm 37 that gave me the encouragement I needed to start living those things out. So um, David says in verse 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. So David is saying in essence, I've been along a really long time and I've been observing how God deals with his children all these years. And not once has he forsaken them or left them in need of any good thing. And although I've come to love New England and my town and my church, Texas still feels very much like home. You heard that I have a son that just graduated from college. He was, the, he was in Texas. I, I was just there a couple of weeks ago for his graduation from Baylor, um, which is in Waco. So if you're a fixer-upper Chip and Joanna fan, you know exactly the place that I'm talking about. It's that sweet little town where you can buy a four-bedroom, two-bath house for less than $200,000, and all the marriages are happy and fun, and the local business owners are all friends, and they go to church together, and it was warm and sunny when I was there, and I was drinking iced coffee at the silos and shopping in the market, and I when I'd go out for a morning run... People were smiling and waving and engaging me in friendly conversation. (laughs) We stayed with my very healthy but aging father. We cooked steaks on his deck after a few hours of floating in tubes down the beautiful nearby river. And did I mention that it was warm and sunny? (laughs) Yep, you could swim in that river without your lips turning blue or your whole body going numb in mid-May. So... Like and like, but like the Israelites experienced, I've had a few false prophets in my life. So a few years ago, during kind of an especially difficult time of ministry, um, someone close to me said something like this. And it was due to me probably complaining, like describing the difficulty of a situation we were in. And so this person said to me, you know, 
you've given up over 15 years of your life living in New England and doing what your husband is called to do. I think it's your turn to live where you want and to do what you want to do now. Yikes. Now, I know that the Lord often speaks through others when he wants to lead us in new directions. But I knew immediately that those words were not from God. A true prophet would have known that what was best for me was to be right where God called both me and my husband. A real friend would have encouraged me to be faithful to that calling, whether it was hard or not, and not tempted me further in my trials with my own desires, which are mostly self-centered, and honestly have much more to do with warmth warmth, and sunshine and southern hospitality than walking with God or ministry. So I knew I needed to disregard those words because they were so contrary to dwell, cultivate faithfulness that, that God had been teaching me all along. Um, and you know what? If it's not a friend or a family member um, playing the role of false prophet, there's plenty of them on social media or in the bookstores. You don't have to look far to find someone to encourage you to seek out your own personal desires and follow your own heart and all the other ways we express that. So many wonderful things have happened in our church in the last 18 years, and I truly consider it a privilege to be here and see firsthand the incredible ways that God has worked in the lives of people. But the difficult days of ministry and the longings for home have not disappeared, so at times it still feels like exile. But the reality is we're all living a type of exile, right? This world is not our home. Life here is difficult, and it's often riddled with disappointments, and yet we're asked to settle here. Um, Peter calls us strangers and aliens, right, in this world, in his book. Um, It's not the Garden of Eden that we were created for, and for most of us, it's lasting a very long time. Um, But we're not the only ones who have been asked to come and dwell and bloom here. So that that Hebrew word dwell is also used of God. So Exodus 29, 45 says, I will dwell, this is God speaking, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. 1 Kings 6, 13, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And even crazier than a God who chooses to come and dwell among his people, that's not true of any other God that any other nation worshipped. He dwells among his people in spirit in those Old Testament verses. Crazier than that is a God who chooses to put on flesh and dwell among us in Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Pitched a tent is what that word dwell means in the Greek in the first chapter of John. So he comes close to us in our exile. Um, So listen to verse 11 again. For I know the plans that I have for you. Um, Some versions, I think, say, I know the thoughts I think toward you. Um, I know the plans or the thoughts that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. So instead of punishing the exiles forever and not granting any hope of redemption or rescue, he assures them of his plan and his promises for the future. So he's coming for them eventually. 
And in the meantime, his thoughts and his plans are for them. So listen to what a couple of commenters have said about those verses. Um, Just the fact that God thinks about us. And there's several places in the Psalms where it says his thoughts are too numerous to count toward us. Um, Another person said, God's thoughts run upon his children, the children of affliction especially, as a father's does upon his dear children. Um, And then Charles Spurgeon said, yet what God told the exiles through Jeremiah was even better. God does not only, does not only think of his people, his thoughts are toward them. The Lord not only thinks of you, but towards you. His thoughts are all drifting your way. Um, that's really encouraging. So in their exile to Babylon, Israel is, simpl- is separated from the temple, which is a pretty big deal. That was their place of worship and their place of communion with God. And it's, it's reminiscent of what happened in the garden, right? So Adam and Eve sin, and they're made to leave their perfect home and their daily intimacy with God himself. So, and it's still the, the case, right? Our, it's our sin that separates us from God. It's what exiled us from a holy God and left us in a fallen world dealing with um, indwelling sin and fighting that battle. But God still promises to come and rescue, and he promises a return to the garden if we receive forgiveness of sin. And the only way he could do that was to become an exile himself in our place, and he did exactly that. He did that in Jesus. He put on flesh He died on a cross to bear the sin that caused our exile. Um, And then he resurrected, showing power and authority over the death that sin brought about. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you can receive and have hope in the same promise that the Babylonians received in the letter. Um, He's coming back for you. He will eventually return you to your true and your new home with him. And not only do you have future hope, but you have present help. So you have help to bloom where you're planted. You have strength from him to remain, to settle, to surrender, no matter what your circumstances are. So it might be a difficult marriage that you're having to walk through. Your health may have taken a turn for the worse. Um, You might be surprised at how difficult parenting is. Or you might wish you could experience the difficult, the difficulties of, of parenting, but you're not able to do that now. He might be asking you to remain faithful and pure in your singleness, um, to keep praying for and being patient with a rebellious child, to keep striving with a child or an elderly parent who is sick and requires great care, um, Family gatherings might be a source of pain and discouragement. Your work environment might be frustrating. People might be taking you for granted, your faithful volunteer efforts. Friends may have betrayed you. You may have dreams and desires that seem to be disregarded even by God himself. All of those things, as difficult as they are, are fertile ground for growing closer to God and for blooming. Why did God require 70 years of exile for the Babel, with the Babylonians for his children? I think it was partly because they had not chosen to worship him in the promised land. So when everything was going great, they turned from him. 
a couple of years ago, I experienced what felt to me like this deep betrayal by someone close to me. I was hurt and grieved over the loss of relationship greatly through tears. I was grieving for weeks. And when I would recount this experience to my husband, listing off all of the felt, my felt injustices, um, he would listen and he would say, I know, I'm so sorry. Don't you love Jesus more now? And it wasn't, he wasn't teasing or mocking. It was a sincere question. I know, I'm so sorry, but don't you love Jesus more now? And although I would not want to go through that again, I do love Jesus more now because of it. He, he met me in my grief. He taught me not to put my hope in man. I read his word more. Um, I prayed more. I poured out my heart more and was met with more grace and strength by the one who had experienced a betrayal much, much greater than mine. Um, my exile to New England <laughs> has caused me to know and love him more, um, to let go of idols, right? He wanted them to let go of those too. So my idols were probably things like control and comfort, and he was wanting me to let go of those. And I feel at this point I should give a disclaimer because sometimes we, we can and we should change our circumstances and our situations, and that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. And I think you guys understand that I'm talking about um, situations that you can't change, situations that God has asked you to remain faithful in. They've been appointed by God, even though they are difficult. So um, pray to receive the soil of heartbreak, of injustice, of desires unfulfilled, of loss, of exhaustion, of stress, of disappointment. Um, or simply just less than ideal circumstances and ask him to help you grow and surrender to the places you've been planted. Those things are a part of our reality because of sin. It's true. Um, And sin reigns in this fallen world. So we're always going to have trouble in this world. But our God is so gracious that he uses those difficult realities for our good so that in our ultimate good is knowing him more and That's what he uses those things for. So he is both um, our model for blooming where you've been planted, and he's also the giver of power and strength to do so. So let me pray for you guys.